Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Since we recorded this podcast, Dr. Hayes has moved on from Ceremony Health to her nonprofit, How We Heal. We will provide a link below if you want to support her work. Hi, everybody. It's uh, me again, Charles Eisenstein, with my guest, Melody Hayes, who I met at a retreat uh, at Esalen. I remember Melody didn't say a whole lot, but whatever she said was like slightly surprising and really worth listening to. Uh, that was not just my own opinion, I think. She's been one of those people where, where I felt like there's something that's we're supposed to continue. And at least that's how it felt for me. And so then recently we had the idea of doing recording a conversation because what Melody is doing in the world is incredibly interesting. She is a Harvard and University of California trained physician in anesthesiology at this point and runs this clinic, a faith-based healing center that is developing the use of psychedelics therapeutically. So like, wow, just even that description makes me really curious. And I don't actually know that much, Melody, about what you're exactly doing at the clinic. Maybe we could start there and, and you could just give an overview. Uh, and that's like not even your day job, right? I mean, you're working as an anesthesiologist in a hospital. Is that correct? So I do work part-time as an anesthesiologist, and because we are in the launch phase of Ceremony Health, we're still uh, a startup. We're still a startup. And so we are a faith-based healing center or a medical clinic. Why we are faith-based is because we really are operating from the spiritual practice of love, and that is part of the medicine and part of the treatment. So we're a psychedelic medicine clinic that provides ketamine for uh conditions that are traditionally thought of as anxiety, depression, PTSD, trauma, race-related trauma, um, in the context of therapy. So that's ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Uh, members come in, they work with therapists who are trained by CIIS. It's the only institute that has training for psychedelic therapists. So we have certified psychedelic therapists who are there to work with our, our members. And really, if you've ever experienced depression, or if you've ever been really stuck, um, psychedelics are a medication that can provide profound opening, profound healing, and it is changing the game and revolutionizing the practice of everything from mental health to also pain treatment and pain therapy. So it's really a game changer for people who might have treatment-resistant depression, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I wrote a some pieces uh, many, many years ago about depression, exploring the idea that depression is, I called it a mutiny of the soul that says, 
Because instead of medicalizing it and saying, oh, you know, you've got a problem with your brain chemistry and we can fix that by changing your brain chemistry, I, I said, well, what if depression is the soul's rebellion against a life that isn't really the life that you're supposed to be living right now? Or the, it's urge to withdraw from a world that isn't the way the world is supposed to be. Because depression, like you can't get out of bed, you know, you don't want to even eat or you don't want to do anything but eat. It's rebellion is frequently, a, I, I agree, I completely agree with you. And we, we medicalize the process instead of bringing in the real dimensions of story. And when I say story, I mean archetypes. And I mean mythology and where are you, what story are you in and how, how have the stories that you've been operating under broken down? And how is it time for you to start creating new narratives and new stories for yourself? So to just treat depression as a biochemical problem, that's actually the end point. Meaning all of the ways in which your stories have broken down have caused this biochemical problem. It's not the primary cause. And so when you're in a life in which you're, your meeting making system doesn't work for you. It's time to actually come into a new experience of openness. You know, with uh, psychedelics, they, they shut off your default mode network, which means your mind for a moment is new, neuroplastic. Mm. The stories that you told yourself, clap, it's that Zim clap, right? To bring you back to the moment. Mm -hmm. The stories that you told yourself, stop, and you wake up and you're saying, what is new and present in this moment that I want for my life? The, dis the disadvantage of the medical model is we don't interrogate. Uh, we just say we have these symptoms and therefore you, you have this disease, but really what is your story and what are the new ways of being, the new ways of relating that you need to come into? Because there is, again, I say this over and over again, um, and a lot of people, sometimes parts of their stories are trauma and a pill can't treat trauma, but an experience of love can. So really we need a, a new model that holds the whole person in their whole existence, their complete, every part of them, you know? Um, and that is part of what psychedelic medicine is. It brings in the story, it brings in mythology, it brings in culture, it brings in religion, um, and it brings in understanding of power, you know? Um, and those are very important. And I've been on that road where my life just, all the stories didn't make sense anymore. And, you know, in the medical model, they call, call, call it depression. But really, I had to wake up to who I was. And I am this, you know, what I'm learning, uh, what I've learned is this dynamic woman with a voice and who needs to speak. And when I bring that out in life, I'm out of bed in the morning and I'm happy and I'm connected and, and engaged. Right. And there was no, there's no pill that was going to cure that besides me using my voice. So, yeah. Right. So that would be an illustration of, of rebelling against, like if you're living in a certain story about how to be a human, how to be a woman, how to live life, and that story is not actually accommodating of the expression of your soul, then of course you're going to want to withdraw from it. Uh, it's healthy in a way, actually, to withdraw from it. Depression is actually a kind of a health given those circumstances. So is this new story that then invites the full expression of your life force and gets you out of bed, happy and excited for your day? Uh, like, you know, there's, there's kind of like the uh, political skeptic in me that says changing your story isn't going to change whatever 
oppressive or degrading circumstances that you've been put in due to whatever economic, social, racial influences on our society. Um, how do you negotiate this personal sovereignty and the power of the stories that we tell ourselves? How do you reconcile that with the social determinants of our, uh, I hate to use the word mental health, but you know what I'm saying. Well, I have woken up so profoundly and I had this profound, before psychedelics, I had this profound spiritual awakening and I realized that, oh my God, everything I've been told was a lie. (laughs) (laughs) And later I got medical treatment with ketamine and that was, you know, my exposure to psychedelic therapy. But I had just this profound spiritual opening and everything, I realized that everything that I had been operating under was a lie. And as a, you know, I was a hardworking, diligent, Christian, rural follower, you know, went to college, got the straight A's, went to Harvard, you know, pre-med and just worked, worked, worked. And, and I thought that, you know, there was a path to safety. There was a path to security in that process. And really like many people, they learned that there's, the rewards that the world was promising, maybe they weren't there on that path, right? And so especially, I'll just even be as frank to talk about sexuality, being Christian, you know, the stories about how to be a good woman. So, you know, you're not in your body, you're not connected to your sexuality. And so those stories, it's like, oh no, like, you know, we look at actually, you take in who we worship, you know, the Kim Kardashians, women who are fully in their sexuality, right? So really realizing that the world, the rules that you were operating under were false. But also I, I, I'm subversive in that. I'm not actually subversive. I'm just awake because <laughs> I don't have an agenda. I'm just awake. And my agenda to live my, is to live my joy. And being a person of color means that you have to tell your own stories, stories because the stories written for you uh, about you are not for you right? The stories written about you are not for you. They're not in your Mm -hmm. best interest. And you can say this as well as a, as a woman, you can say this as well as a person with disabilities. You can say this as well as anyone who the dominant narrative that wasn't written for you. You know, one of the things I say that if you're queer, you should flame. If you're black, you should be uppity. You know, you shouldn't Mm -hmm. stay in your place as, as in these categories. And why I say this is because, um, there is a dominant story that makes people of color have to fight against the stream or, or economic minorities have to fight against the stream. And in, even as I say economic minority, that's like, that's false. That's blatantly false. People who are not the uber rich are the economic majority, which means that we actually are the masses and we are like more powerful. And so when you take part and parcel everything that's been told about you, that you are marginalized, that you are oppressed, some of this can be, you know, liberal, idealistic compassion. But if you fully take in those ideologies, oh, I am marginalized. Oh, I am oppressed. That's actually part of your subjugation. That's actually part of your brainwashing. Because you won't realize, you won't access the full potential of your power because you wake up in a concept of a level that you belong in. You wake up in a psychological caste system that says, I'm marginalized, I'm oppressed. And these things, they have a 
material realness in this world, but I'm on a spiritual podcast right now and I know I'm just not of this world. Mm. Uh, and so how do I invite in the spiritual knowledge of who I am before these words such as black and white came into existence? Because we understand that black and white are social constructs to create a power relationship. You know, I may not be able to fully perceive you because my mind's been socialized to perceiving through race, the lens of whiteness and blackness. But if in a, in a blink of an eye, I can open my eyes, not just to be able to see you fully, but to be able to see myself fully. Because what aspects of myself am I leaving out when I can only perceive myself through these lenses of black or white, which are fundamental power relationships. There is no such thing as race. We are fundamentally talking about how we've encoded language to signify relationships of power, right? Mm -hmm. So if I think about, I'm blanking on the artist's name, but I'm thinking about Lacan, right? The object and the signifier are not the same, right? So right. this is not a cigar. I am not a black person. You are not a white man. I don't know what we are, but to get into that mystery, that mm -hmm. invites so much possibility, right? To get into that mystery, because when I get flexible about those stories I was telling you about my inheritance, you know, about what is possible for me. And the most flexibility that I find is that when I know myself as spirit, when I know myself as spirit, I'm like so flexible that I can receive new things in. Um, this is really important. I'll just ground, I'll ground my spiritual knowledge in some sociological science um, by talking about Whistling Vivaldi by Claude Steele, the sociologist, and it talks about how when people are in their consciousness as a black, white, female, or Asian, they behave differently. And so you set up a sociological study in which uh, you cue someone to think about themselves, say this is an Asian female, you cue her to think about herself as Asian before a test. She does better on a test because the stereotypes about Asian-ness are in her identity at that time and she does better on a test. You set up a situation where you cue her to think about herself as a gendered person, a woman. She does worse in a test. The, the group of people do worse in a test when they are thought their gender is cued before that testing circumstance. Mm -hmm. So that tells you that there's environmental stories that you're like, oh, my mind latched onto that story. I'm going to enact and become automatic, automatically consistent with that story. And when you're in that story, you get certain outcomes. And so what I want, there is a world that, a world of possibility, of plasticity, of new outcomes that I want um, for all people. But in order to do that, we have to be flexible and creative about how much do we want to be tethered to the definitions and the ide ideologies that we've been passed, that's been passed down to us, right? Women yeah. have become something fun fundamentally different than what we ever thought we could be, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, this is, you know, very interesting. A lot of what you're saying in the current political climate is rather incendiary, actually. I know. Uh, simply because... <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm not going to call you out for your white male privilege right now. Just, you know, just saying. But, but um, you know... But, but how it, do you... Wait, Charles, how do you... <laughs> to the place I have in my life if I didn't think internally I'm going to walk in white male privilege. That's, uh -huh. those, those are ways of being creative <laughs> with my internal stories. It's like, no, I'm not going to be in the fear stories that are part of my tribe. Like, actually, how do I actually have a, an attitude of um, there's a new possibility for me? 
And so, I, oh, let's get let's get real. These these, I'm not denying the the so, the realities that we're living in. I'm not a world denier, but what I'm saying is is that the first insult is the social conditions, and the second insult is that you want my mind to be equivalent to the social conditions, and you want my spirit to be equivalent to the social conditions. And I'm like, you know, the social conditions are the first insult, which are egregious, right? But the second insult is that you want to take away my power by telling me I'm equivalent to those conditions. Right. No. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm just a no on that. <laughs> yeah. It's, and I, I hope that, that, that anyone listening to this who is entranced by the current polarized conversation in the public realm really hears the nuances and the category disrupting implications of what what you're saying, Melody, because um, you're not advocating on the one hand color blindness, you know, uh, nor the racialization of everything, the the turning race into this totalizing discourse, where it's almost like a recapitulation of legacy racism, uh, where the the you know postmodern word is essentialism, where race has become this like essential part of who you are, white or black. And, you know, in the 60s and 70s, like racial progress was to um, recognize that race is just a social construct. And now it's kind of been re-essentialized again. Anyway, one thing that came up when you were, when you were also talking is that I could see how a narrative of you are a victim of oppression, et cetera, could actually be liberating at a certain stage because it can help, it can help somebody you know, whether it's racial oppression or gender oppression or, you know, any other of these, you know, phobias, it can be like, hey, it's not your fault. It's not because you're a bad person that you are suffering. It's because of forces beyond your control. So there's a kind of a liberation there. And it seems like what you're speaking to is a second step of liberation, where you're like, actually, I have a sovereignty and a power that does not subjugate me to my inclusion in any group. That does not identify me with the universal traits of some group or the, 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 the situation that I have as membership of some group. Coming into a power here, am I understanding you correctly? Or do you want to... Um... Perhaps what we're summarizing is John Paul Salter's idea of bad faith when you become so reconciled to your status that there's a, a lack of authenticity of a genuine intimate understanding of who you are in that your group identity is beautiful. You know, there is power in that. One of the things that was coming up for me and we were talking about victim is really liberation theology and which took root in Latin American countries, African countries. Mm -hmm. And really it says, regardless of my, social condition. I am the light of God's eye. You know, I am the light in this world. And the empowerment, oh, I just feel my, my skin tingle as I just feel that, the, the power of that, you know, and the power to, for people living in impoverished conditions to understand their sovereignty, to understand their power, and understand their collective power as spiritual beings. And what might look like victimization, it becomes a subversive way of saying, no, this is my glory. 
right? Even, even in my suffering, I am more identified with Christ or I'm more identified with God and I am a part of this collective community. And there is electrifying power in being identified with something higher and larger than you. And that can be your community that's now taking its collective suffering and decided to, what, change the world, change Mississippi's flag. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, so there is definitely power in that. And that is, you know, there is a way in which if you are economic, if you are a numerical minority, the victim sense is a moral appeal, right? We make mm -hmm. moral appeals. This was done by Gandhi. This was done by Martin Luther King. And in our nonviolent elegance and eloquence, stating that we are worthy, right? And so once we're... Charles, you and I both said I was going to come on this podcast. We weren't going to talk about race. We're going to talk about psychedelics. <laughs> we're going to talk about psychedelics. But the point is, is that the social reforms that we're doing are part of how we're waking up. Um, and psychedelics are a part of how we're waking up. I, I just, I want to hold all things at the same time, meaning I want to hold the material realities that we're in. And as, at the same time, I still just want to hold this message of, as we fight, as, as there's progress we made, please do not, what I always say for myself is please do not confuse my situation with my status. And I know my spiritual status, right? Mm -hmm. And so as we are aware of the progress that needs to be made in the vulnerability and the, the exploitation from structural racism, let's also remember who we are as a people. And when I say we, I mean a collective people. Um, black and white. One day, I would like to say people who thought they were black and people who thought they were white <laughs> really would uh -huh. just like us to. Um, I'm in dangerous territory here, Melody. To say am I? Like that. Am I? Please, okay. <laughs> I mean, today, everything's dangerous territory, you know. But um, maybe. What, why is this dangerous? Because we know the history. I'm a physician. And when I actually talk about, we know that race is a, um, it's a myth. And that racism within medicine has actually perpetuated the myth of race, right? Mm -hmm. So when, and, and then we know as sociologists and historians that we use these terms race to create hegemonic relationships of power, right? Black and white. Right. And so when I deconstruct our language and say, why are we still in these, these, these falsehoods, these social constructs, when are we going to move to something that actually offers us, offers us liberation? Because I want our freedom. I'm confused as why that is a dangerous territory. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I mean, dangerous in the current political climate where anything that doesn't easily fit into a certain narrative is called out as, you know, supporting white supremacy or, or something like that. It's, it's gotten quite toxic out there. So for example, I mean, I don't know if I really want to go into this. Um, I wanted to talk to you originally was, was to talk about your, um, the work of your, um, yes. Um, well, actually I'm going to use this as a moment cause I feel that you're uncomfortable. So I'm going to use this as a moment to be in a process with you. So I'm, I'm actually going to use this as a moment to invite in maybe what's feeling uncomfortable because the work is always to expand around discomfort. And so 
is it is it okay if I stay with you in this process for a moment sure. to expand expand yeah. expand on something? Sure. So could you share what you were going to share a moment ago? Um, so I'm, I, my discomfort actually isn't so much because I'm afraid of what's going to happen if I say something. But you know, today I, I just read some news, some some little headline or something, you know, that about somebody getting fired because they tweeted at one point, "Black Lives Matter." and all lives matter. They said, they said, you know, both these things. Now I understand like that saying all lives matter is given the current circumstances, you're kind of implying that, you know, police violence against black people isn't a problem. Uh, you're kind of negating this, this call to awareness embodied mm. in the slogan, Black Lives Matter. So I understand mm -hmm. the, the criticism of saying all lives matter in the current situation. And that critique, which you know, is getting people deplatformed and fired, uh, extends to um, what, what I was referring to when I, when I kind of jokingly said, oh, you're getting onto dangerous territory here, is that people who say things like, I look forward to the day when we said, those of us who thought we were black and those of us who thought we were white, this kind of transcendence of racism uh, mm -hmm. or of a racial lens of viewing ourselves. People who say things like that can mm -hmm. get eviscerated on social media. Uh, because like, for example, one of the teachings of, of, of the book White Fragility is that you can never transcend racism. And if you even express that possibility, you are in fact being a white supremacist. Oh my gosh. So, so this is like this, this minefield right now that we're walking in. And I don't know, I always do this. I like trudge right into the minefield whenever it's available. Um, so, so that's, that's just a little bit of the background. So, that I, so I'm glad we explicated this because this is actually something that I think deeply about. And it's not about, it's actually about otherism. And how are we creating divisiveness? And my own experience with uh, of mental health is that the more others I have, the less healthy I am. So if, if I've othered people as white, if I've othered people as male, and I'm not connected to their humanity, then I'm less healthy. There's more fragility in me. There's just more reactivity mm -hmm. in me. And so how do we, so right now we're in a context where we're trying to use ideologies to promote inclusion and diversity, but it's being done with a spirit that's shame-based. Right. And so what I've learned about shame or training people through shame is you get certain people. Um, for certain people, when you train them through shame, you get short-term obedience, but the shame lives in them as a seed. And later on, they're going to want to come back and pass forward that energy of shame. And that energy of shame will be expressed as, as anger or violence when they get into a position of power so they can pass forward shame. And so as we're training people into, you know, maybe what's called a behavioral compliance through shaming them, what we're doing is passing forward this experience of shame. Someone says a low vibration and the karma of that, it, it just wants to come out and pass, you know, pass forward again, the experience of shaming. And so then we pass it down online, we pass it down online and pass it down to generations. But what I want to do is inspire people to conversion, meaning through the love that I embody. 
through the hope that's in my heart. I would like to inspire people through conversations and relationship. We're going to be in this dance where we are in a space of creating spacious humanity for all people. Maybe I've got a more turf in this part of the battle, but I haven't done the work of ending divisiveness if I've only won your obedience through shame. Mm -hmm. That's such a, that is a profound insight. Uh, I've noticed something similar that um, when people are motivated by shame or, or guilt to demonstrate their anti-racism, for example, or to demonstrate their virtue in any way, what their actually what their actual motive is is to look good, is to avoid further shaming, it's to avoid criticism, uh, it's to maintain an image of being virtuous, and not to actually help the condition of those who are suffering in the world. So it it, it motivates only a very superficial and only enough change to look like you're doing the work, but it doesn't instill the real motivation to change the conditions of this world. And there you have in it the problems with um, nonprofit work. <laughs> like, like there, you know, like when you, when you think about, we have so many things that are structured to quote unquote, help, help the poor, help the marginalized, but it's scratching the surface because a lot of the work is, some, is positioning or posing as though you're changing, but a fundamental change would be to fundamentally change wealth distribution, mm -hmm. right? To create universal health care, to create a living wage. That's a fundamental change. But to position and say, you know, I actually love being in a city where now in every city there's posters on every restaurant and the brand is Black Lives Matter. I love seeing that. But to fundamentally change that's that's positioning it's important because words matter words really matter they are they are spiritual you know they are mm -hmm. one of the first places you get in co contact in expression of at the expression of energy and consciousness so words matter but black lives matter in san francisco would mean are these signs an invitation for the reverse migration of black f families that have left the city you know or right. been pushed out of the city so there's symbolic work and then there's a deep work of creating cultures of inclusion, right? Creating cultures of inclusion and belonging. Right. What you're saying is, yeah, Black Lives Matters uh, posters, those are good. But does that actually change the generational legacy of poverty that people of color are facing in this country? Does that change the genetically encoded trauma that might go back for generations? doesn't change any of that. You know, white people can get down and kneel and apology all they want, but that doesn't mean that anything has changed. I mean, this actually gets to the, to the work that you're doing in the clinic too, because when we really look at social, political, economic aspect, and then there's also the, the level of personal healing uh, and uh, re reclaiming power from a legacy of poverty or trauma, and that is in part the work that you're doing in your clinic. And then, like you said, like, you know, something like a universal basic income or even the concept of reparations. Today, it's all about reparations because uh, we're guilty. You know, it's a kind of a punishment mentality, whereas it could be approached from the point of how do we repair this rent in the social fabric? 
how do we, out of, out of our love for our brothers and sisters, how do we, how do we change the conditions? And then reparations doesn't become about punishment. It becomes about taking care of each other. Uh, it becomes compassion. Anyway, I'm, um, I'll just invite you to respond to any of these, uh, you know, social or personal healing. You talked about how do you take away the trauma that's in the, in the body and mm -hmm. to get back on the topic that for which I was invited to talk <laughs> psychedelic medicines are really one of the only medicines that we know about that addresses trauma in the body. When you look at the research about um, early adverse childhood, childhood events and how those create the consequences of anxiety, depression, coronary artery disease, cancer. Um, and now in California with Nadine Burke Harris as the uh, Surgeon General of California, we're gonna start tracking these. But there's nothing that we currently have besides psychedelic medicine that can actually do more than document, but actually cure, tra uh, liberate and transform from the experience of trauma. Because trauma is, is, it's almost a pattern that can keep people stuck in their conditions. And I also just wanna talk about the trauma of um, whiteness as well. And this is what we get with white fragility. And this is why I'm not in a conversation about, well, black people need treatment for trauma. I'm also not, I'm in a conversation that everyone needs a treatment for trauma. Because um, the fact that you may not recognize me as your own, as a part of your humanity, that's, I feel like something is traumatizing that worldview. And to create systems that exploit or deny the humanity of other people that are violent, that needs to be addressed, you know? And so we are a vulnerable population, right? At the same time, I'm tired of being in conversations about our vulnerability that don't include actually that there is the mirror side of this dance. I was remember being in a conversation where someone was like, Oakland has a lot of trauma. And I'm like, really? Is that where you're going to go in this conversation? Because, you know, San Francisco has a lot of trauma that it doesn't include, it doesn't include and create space to keep all of its brothers and sisters in the city. Um, and every aspect, every single aspect of trauma that you see in communities of color are a shadow aspect of the dominant white society. So when you look at drugs and crime, you, you have to go back into the policies that created those in, in communities of color. When I was living, growing up in, in Compton, um, I would be like, you know, going to a summer program to prepare me for a summer, like a science summer program. I would get up in a really early in the morning, take a bus to UCLA. I'd be out, out there at twilight of night, like five o'clock, getting a bus, to, like three buses to go to UCLA, um, sorry, USC. And then I would be out there walking to the bus stop and there, there would be white men in cars trolling for prostitutes on the street. And so the trauma of exploitation, like, you know, people have come to communities of color and exploited communities of color. And that's not, we're not, the problems are not separated from a dominant society. And so there is no part of us, when I say us, I mean the whole collective society, there's no part of us that doesn't need to be brought into light. Um, and it's so funny, I'm like sitting in this conversation, I'm like, this feels uncomfortable. I'm like, where do I wanna go? Where do I wanna mm -hmm. move to? And this is what we talk about, Charles. It's the more beautiful world that we know is possible, right? And 
I kind of feel like this, there's this roomy poem, you know, kind of like, I, I can't quote it exactly, but there's this village or this space, you know, like come with me and go there. <laughs> and I want through the practice of love, of being love, of inviting people into transformational healing to, through psychedelic medicine, of being in community practices where you can actually, with vulnerable curiosity, learn to experience my consciousness and I can learn to experience your consciousness in a flexible, open way that we actually can have dialogue as humans so that we can move the conversation forward. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I need you to learn, like say you as a person, and if I were in a conversation with you and I wanted you to learn something, how would I best help you learn and keep you in relationship to stay in this conversation? So every time you open your mouth, when you said something where you offended me and I lashed you, I probably wouldn't keep you in conversation for very long. Right. <laughs> but I actually need you to learn. I actually need you to see me. I actually need you to love me. And so how do I keep you in conversation? And this is very complicated work, but I, I want to remain in, re retaining you in openness so that when it's my turn to speak, that you will hear me and your heart will still be open to hearing everything that I have to say. Mm -hmm. And so I fundamentally find that this conversation uh, you know, no party is going either place. So it's a marriage. Black people, white people, Latino people, Asian people. It's a marriage. Um, so we have to find a way to communicate so that we can stay in relationship and actually identify mm -hmm. what's the relationship that we want to have. And is, how do we create moments of joy, harmony, peace, and love in this relationship? Because my eyes are on the prize. My eyes are on the outcome. Mm -hmm. I'm really aligned to what do I want to see? What do I want to see? And I want to see universal health care. I want to see, you know, healthy birth outcomes for all Americans. I really want to see us decrease our vigilance against one another so that we can all feel more peace every day walking down the street. Mm -hmm. I want to see us to dismantle this idea that our suffering is because of our monoamine deficiency and really realize how much our suffering is because of how you've created separations from you and me mm -hmm. and from our authentic selves, right? And that is medicine. Like living within that is medicine, which means that I can create so much health for myself and for others by being in this pro-social, gracious possibility of what we can create for one another. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk about ceremony health, when I talk about the clinic, um, it's a clinic for all people um, of all economic classes, just like your retreats are. You know, your retreats, your conferences, they're beautiful because you make it pay whatever you can pay whatever you want. And there's, there's rooms of billionaires in, in your conference. There's a billionaire. There's a student, you know, who's in college. Um, and the wonderful and glorious thing about that is that you create a space where all people can see that all people are worthy 
and all people need to be included in this, this vision of society that we're creating. I sometimes have this vision of like, we're in a pot of magic and we need to create this spell and we need everyone to contribute their gifts for the spell. We need everyone from every tribe to contribute their gifts from a spell for the spell. And that means that they need to actually know their tribe, right? And that's not black or white, that's African, that's European American. That's, and I think that when we are in this space where we know everyone has gifts, because we can't complete this, the magic spell until everyone offers their gift. We really can't, we, we can't complete it. We can't create this, create this spell um, until everyone offers their gifts. And you have to invite everyone. And you have to know that they carry gifts and develop the capacity to, and the habit of seeing them that way and the curiosity and never write anybody off or dehumanize somebody or think that they're not important or that they don't have a gift that's a necessary ingredient in the alchemical spell that you're talking about. And I, I find that, you know, if we could just create conditions where we could hear each other's stories in fullness, then it would be impossible to judge or dehumanize anybody because whatever you judge, even like the most violent, abusive, you know, spousal abuser or, or, or you know, white nationalist or wh whoever you judge the most, when you ask, well, what happened to turn you from a little cute baby who just wants what all babies want? What happened to turn you into somebody who is dealing out violence and abuse to others? Like, what, what's your story? And that process of unwinding the stories to, to reveal the gift underneath, uh, and even and that process of healing from the trauma, which uncovers the gift, and maybe which is even, you could even say that is the gift. That, I think, is the most important work that we, that we can do right now as a society. And you're speaking to that on, on a couple of different levels, you know, both the, the, the medicinal level, uh, but also on the level of social medicine and our, our social practices. So the way of being in the world where you're looking at everyone as a possibility, mm -hmm. oh my God, that heals you. That's medicine for you. When you're looking at everyone as like, what do you, oh my God, you're, you're a beautiful creation of God what gifts do you have to offer? You get so curious and open and playful because you actually want to radiate out something to them, to them that will allow them to offer their gift, right? So you're off, you're, your presence and beholding them as a possibility, that's an offering. That's an initial offering. And as, this is from the Celestine Prophecy. As you offer them more positive intent, positive belief, they can feel that they respond to that. They offer you more because people show up as you believe them to be. And so when we're in that space of believing the best that is possible, and you can see this happening when you get into um, a dynamic with someone, is it an upward spiral or is it a downward spiral? Mm -hmm. And do I believe the best that is possible for you? And did I start with my gifts? Am I leading my gifts? Did I start with you? from an expectation of a bad outcome? Or did I start with you from an expectation that, oh, we're gonna dance, we're gonna party, this is gonna be fun and joyful. And so that gift that I offer you is my positive expectation, right? Yes. And 
we can heal ourselves and our histories when we can present our gifts of love, of positive expectations, and be with each other in that expectancy. I find that there's a way through just the positions that I hold my heart in that I can create these, these spaces of creation um, by this positive expectation of right. others. And it's not, you know, the positive expectation doesn't mean that you ignore or pretend that they don't exist, um, the, the other aspects of that person. But it's that you don't allow those to define them to you. And you stay in the, the possibility of that person's healing and their fulfillment of their uh, glorious purpose of, of being here. Is that accurate to describe it that way? That is accurate. And the more you attend to the aspects of the person that you want to see, the more you see them, right? Mm -hmm. And this is the self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and this has been proven sociologically. Um, I was a, a teacher taught in low-income schools before I became a physician and reading about studies about how you could point to a student and tell the student, the teacher, that student, we tested her and she's going to see an amazing growth. And this is like an African-American child being taught by a white student. She's going to see an amazing growth in her score. score. She may not show it now, but she's going to see an amazing um, mm -hmm. improvement. This was total uh, placebo. They just told, right. it, told the teacher arbitrarily about this one student and that positive expect expectancy, right? right? So probably invisibly, that's, and then sure enough, the end of the year, the student was doing better. That positive expectancy sort of creating this possibly greater investment, greater attentiveness, slowing down and, you know, oh, I, right. I know there's something great here. And that's what we can do for each other, you know? Um, you know, we have work to do. I'm not in La La Land. Um, we have work to do. There's policies that need to be created. There are, there is serious work to do. But I know that I create my world from my heart. And so my heart needs to be in alignment with the vision that I, that I want to create. So, so in the clinic, there's the medicine, there's the ketamine, the psychedelic mm -hmm. medicine. And then mm -hmm. there's the way that you hold the medicine. So can you tell me a little bit about the relationship between what you just said, you know, and then the medicine itself. Thank you so much. So um, we hold you as a possibility. At our clinic, we hold you as a possibility. We really believe in healing. And that's a different expectation to even come from. That's a different container to come from because the traditional model of medicine is that you have an incurable disease. And to really hold people as possible of transformation and to hold them as, hold that the relational aspect is part of the healing, that the healers themselves, that's the therapists, are part of the healing. And so they are there to be that gaze that holds you as a possibility to be in a positive expectancy and to be in a tuned, compassionate, loving connection, because it's through loving connections that we open and we feel safe and we realign to that essential child who always knew it was worthy and always knew that it was loved. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the, the frame. Um, with psychedelic medicine, your intention setting is really important. So you set intentions and before the medicine so that you can 
almost guide the medicine to help you heal in the direction towards your intention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that makes it hard to fit what you're doing into a um, the framework of scientific verification because so say you quantified your results uh, working with trauma, say, mm -hmm. um, and someone said, oh, well, I would like to replicate that data. But they used the same protocols, but they didn't actually have that um, positive expectancy and that holding of the possibility of healing. They might not get nearly as good results. So this is an example where it's impossible to separate the experimenter out from the experiment. That said, do you plan to try to you know, produce research that, that helps validate the efficacy of psychedelics in trauma healing? Or what are your visions for the, for the uh, healing center? So um, we definitely are doing um, some quantitative analysis and doing surveys uh, that, will, that can document the pre-exposure you know, pre to post-exposure um, benefits. Um, but also there's just a lot of clinical trials out there that have already shown that ketamine is effective. Mm -hmm. um, and that psychedelic medicines in general um, can be very effective. So we are definitely doing that. And we're, our clients are having rave reviews. And I, I really do believe um, what you were describing was the observer effect and how mm -hmm. the, the person who's observing determines the outcome. And, yeah. and our clients are offering us rave reviews as well. So there's data and then there's reviews. And uh, just to give you a little bit of history around psychedelic medicines, you know, they were, in the 60s, they were a part of clinical research. There were studies on LSD and alcoholism. There were a lot of studies being done about psychedelic medicines. And then they went, uh, became illegal. And so mm -hmm. they dropped out of clinical science research. But people who were professionals, <laughs> these were PhDs, these were doctors, kept doing them in the underground. And I just think that there's something really powerful and telling that people were willing to risk their professional uh, reputations to continue to operate illegally providing these substances. You know, so there's power. There's really profound power in, in efficacy in, in these substances. And so, and there's a long history. There's a long um, mm -hmm. cultural history. If we talk about indigenous communities um, with psychedelic and transformative processes, um, and then there's a long underground history. And now because of the clinical research coming out of Hopkins, out of, you know, institutions like UCSF, right. and MGH now has a, a psychedelic research center in the Imperial College of London. All of these top institutions are continuing to do the work to create research. I just interviewed Robin Cartwright Harris for City Arts and Lectures in the Bay Area um, via Zoom about his work with psilocybin. And so there's both, you know, cultural, traditional, lay, um, popular, and scientific evidence for their profound effect. Yeah. Do you have any uh, stories that really stayed with you as, as far as like some of them, maybe like one of the most moving or miraculous yeah. stories of healing? Yeah. You be able to share? Yeah, it's not from my clinic. This was actually a palliative care nurse. Um, and when I met her, she was, you can tell she was just depressed. She was, uh, you know, bereft from having been at the bedside, been a, you know, a caregiver for many people who are uh, dying. And I'm a person who, when I see you, I can see you 20 years later. I'm like, hey, didn't we meet? And I'll tell you the story that, mm. you know, 
she had went to the underground and I cannot recommend this because I'm a doctor, but this is what she had done. Um, she had went to the underground and she had gotten treatment with psilocybin. And I met up with her. We were, we were meeting up for something related to palliative care, which is one of my passions. And I was standing outside and I was looking for her, looking for her. And I couldn't find her because I couldn't recognize her. She was transformed. I could not, I could barely recognize her. I was like, who are you? And she's like, I'm like, I don't, and I'm just saying like, I'm like, did you lose weight? And I, and then I realized spiritually she had like, you know, lost 50 pounds of grief. And that's why I couldn't recognize her. Her face was transformed. What she was wearing was different. Her whole energy, her countenance was transformed. And that was the most profound thing. And she had been stuck in depression for such a long time. We had had a conversation during a previous conversation. She was tearful during that conversation. Um, and then she was just like light and glorious. And wow. psilocybin is being researched by Johns Hopkins. I really do hope that uh, Ceremony Health will be able to bring it to, um, in our clinic once it, it hits the market. Mm-hmm. And there are states uh, that are working to decriminalize uh, psilocybin. So this is just one story of the profound efficacy mm-hmm. of, of psychedelic medicines. And it was, it was gripping because I really have a photographic memory and I could not recognize her. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 I remember reading uh, in the nineties, I, I discovered Stanislav Grof and began reading his descriptions of LSD psychotherapy and, you know, the research that he had done in the sixties and seventies, which was then again, um, you know, criminalized. And that was one of the main tributaries that fed my kind of, you know, radicalism, that a medicine so profound would be illegal, was enough to, in my mind, indict our entire civilization, you know, or our entire society. Like, how could, like, up is down, good is evil. Like, how could this beautiful medicine not be embraced? You know, like, how could I trust our medical authorities and our political authorities when medicine is illegal and poison has become medicine. Whoa. I, I, I hear you. I, and I think that poison has become medicine. (laughs) You talk to some people about their experiences with SSRIs, poison has become medicine. And the difference between being awake and knowing yourself and being numb and able to go back to work is, and that's really what psychedelics treatment offers, awaken knowing yourself or being numb and being able to show up to work. Um, And I won't be too radical here, but the argument is is that our current medical model allows the system to perpetuate, to continue. Um, And maybe there's inefficiencies in people being awake and knowing themselves and knowing their worth. Um, Yeah, back in the day when they said, legalization of psychedelics or of marijuana even will destroy society as we know it. I think they were actually right. They were. destroy the society as we know it. Mm. A society that could be built on the radical awakening of millions of people would be a very different society. Tell me more about the society. Tell me more. Well, just to multiply that woman who you just described by, you know, billions of people. I mean, imagine if every person who is that depressed had access to the, this technology of healing and awakening. Imagine if instead of spending, I don't know, $100 billion 
uh, researching whatever we research now in medicine, imagine if we turned that kind of resource, if we said, yeah, we are in a state of emergency here. Like the mobilization that's happened under COVID-19, if we had even a tenth of that mobilization around chronic psychological conditions, our society would be totally transformed. This is just an example that, that illustrates the principle that none of our civilization's problems are actually that serious, as in difficult to solve. The, technically, they're easy to solve. Like climate change, if we devoted a tenth of our military budget to regenerative agriculture, gone. Problem gone. gone. Yeah. I completely agree with you because COVID is such a special dynamic thing because we, we've done the impossible because of COVID. We're giving so much funding to develop small businesses. We're giving, you know, low-income people, um, like, financial support. We are, we are changing the world. And because of the protests, we are uh, addressing systemic racism. But the thing, this is the point of that this was easily accomplishable, but we just didn't do it. Because, you know, Colin Ka Kaepernick took a knee, mm -hmm. his simple protest. We could have done that. <laughs> we could have we responded so much earlier, you know, and... This is what's happened. And maybe you, you let me know if you think this is why this has happened. It's, there is this, the fabric of society is now worn thin and changed. There's something dynamic that's happening. Um, there's vulnerability. There's Kali energy, which is the energy of destruction. When we're in a stage of Kali, creation is the next cycle, right? Mm -hmm. So we're actually really dynamically creating something new but we're also in a cycle of destruction um, and destruction feels uncomfortable, but it's this fundamentally creative process. It is a fire in a forest. And then the next season, the forest will be more verdant. Right. Yeah. Um, and so we had to loosen our attachment to the rhythms and structures to create space for creativity. It's like what you were talking about before, you know, when, when you talk, talked about uh, people being trapped in their story, uh, there has to be the destruction of that story, which is really disorienting and scary, if there's, especially if there's not someone to hold you through the process. And I think the same thing is ha like you're describing, it's happening collectively now, uh, the, the destruction cycle. I don't think we're anywhere near finished with the destruction cycle. We're not. We're not. And so this is why I, I ask all creators to start visioning the world that you want to create. Everything's on the table. What I say is everything's on the table. We are, as someone who's, his, whose family is from Mississippi, I'm like, Mississippi changed its flag, guys. That means everything's on the table. <laughs> Everything is on the table. So start visioning. This society has COVID, consider it like the most powerful psychedelic medicine because we are on a journey. This society is in a neuroplastic moment. Decide your intention right now. Who do we want to become on the other side of COVID? More inclusion, more economic um, opportunities for all people. How, what is the society that we're going to create? My, the things that are important to me are universal health care, a universal um, living wage, and deconstruction of prison industrial, industrialized complex. Mm -hmm. 
because, and then you have to address um, issues of drug, drug reform because the mm -hmm. ways in which we criminalize substances, especially things, marijuana, that we now through society and through research have decided, oh, actually there's a lot of medicinal benefits to, to marijuana. So how can we stop the funnel of people to jails for things as benign as marijuana? Yeah. Um, and so these are the things that matter to me as a healthcare provider um, because trauma produces trauma, produces trauma. <laughs> right. But but love and connection produce something different, you know? Mm -hmm. I would just add to that list, uh, debt cancellation. Tell me more. Well, uh, you know, there's the, the international level of the debt of third world countries of the global south that forces them to continually export their raw materials, their, their resource, their ecosystems, basically to cut down the forests, to mine the minerals, and even their labor in order to make payments on these debts that never go away and can never be repaid, and whose initial lending mostly benefited you know, foreign corporations and local elites anyway. Like there's that, that just basically, it's a tribute system. It's indentured, it's indentured servitude. Right, and then on yeah. the individual level too. You know, that's what keeps so many people yoked to jobs that they that are not fulfilling to their to their souls, you know, that are depressing to work in, that aren't contributing to life on earth. It's it's yeah, it's a kind of servitude. And canceled debts, it's a big topic, you know, and there's it's not like all of a sudden you abolish all debt, because then you've also abolished grandma's savings account. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So it has to be done in a strategic way, but basically it's a way to uh, redistribute wealth that's mm -hmm. become really polarized. And I think that along with what you mentioned, um, some kind of living wage, uh, universal healthcare and ending the prison industrial complex, that would help people of color a lot more tangibly and realistically than any of the symbolic stuff going on now. I just hope that the symbolic stuff maybe helps orient people toward actual solutions. So I'm not saying the symbolic stuff is bad, but if it's just that, you know. So, and let me push the point further. You said those, those conditions would help people of color. I would also say those conditions would help people who, who think they're white, who are white, right? right. Because, and why, why do I say this? Let me, let me explain this. In the 1960s or 70s, there was a, a study that came out of Stanford. It was the prison studies where basically mm -hmm. they took average volunteers and they randomized them. And one group was the, was the prison warden and one group was the prison, prisoners. And I believe the study only like went on for a week, but they had to show up for every day and the warden had to show up and take care of the prisoners. And within like, you know, a few days, the prison guards became, their psychology changed. And they started saying, oh, these fucking, excuse me for cursing. I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on your podcast. <laughs> well, but I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to get into the, the energy right. of what was in the study. It was like, you know, these, you know, these you know, these pinche prisoners, like, you know, like, like, it's just like, you know, these freaking prisoners are so blah, blah, blah. They're so lazy. They're blah, blah, blah. They're aggressive, yeah. blah, blah, blah. These are study. These are study volunteers. Yeah. But then within a space of time, their ideologies had changed. And one group actually, and the ones who were behind the cages went into victim mentality, right? right. And so they went into feeling vulnerable and they're, I'm sure the testosterone levels lowered, their cortisol, their cortisol levels increased as they were being, um, you know, policed, right? Yeah. And so when you actually take people of color 
out of prison systems, you free yourself. Because that psychology of the oppressor, that is not benign. It, it might feel good. You might feel like you have, like, the psychology of bullying. You might have, feel this, like, you know, testosterone boost or whatever. But it is not spiritually benign to when we have anyone behind cages, that does something to you, right? Mm -hmm. And so this desire, because really when we take people out of these categories of other, and, and I'm fine if we continue being black and white so long as we don't be other. So if you, if you say this language, I can't, I, I'm not allowed out of this language. You know, I want a way out of these, these constructs and language is the closest access to consciousness for me. That's the direct mm -hmm. access to energy and consciousness. So please, can we invite in new language? Because, you know, we had to start saying that black was beautiful. You know, we had to put that in language. And so when you, when when you allow someone to ex exit the prison that you are holding them within your mind, you actually mm -hmm. free some of your, yourself. And so you will feel safer walking down the street, not by incarcerating people, by actually releasing people from the negative projections that you've placed on them that causes them to be in jail. Mm -hmm. We create psychological safety by the prisons of ideology, of identities that we release other people from, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is, a, this is a process for all of us to create a society. There is, I, I know it's a foreign concept because we think that people are, well, they're in, in jail, so they must be dangerous. But no, we're living in a society that actually needs danger, so we create jails. Mm -hmm. And so... Other societies don't have this level of, of incarceration at all. And it's a foreign concept to them that, you know, you would need your citizens to have guns. And I'm not coming after the Second Amendment or anything like that. I'm just saying there is another way to live um, with less, a less daily feeling of threat. But with that less daily feeling of threat, I don't know if you would shop as much. So maybe like maybe there's a, a little bit of a of a purpose for that daily insecurity. We are gonna get, keep you hopped up yeah. on the sense of daily insecurity. See, I we're gonna get you hopped up on the sense of daily insecurity. You're gonna fear your neighbor. You're gonna you know you're gonna need an SUV to make you feel you know at, at feel bigger and more secure. And then you're going to need to go off to the suburbs, which is increasing, your, you know, your commuting time. And this whole, and you're going to need to buy more things to what? Give you a sense of connectedness because now you're separated from your fellow man because you we told you that they were evil and you were different. Yep. And, it's good for business. <laughs> it's good for business, but it's not doing much for the levels of anxiety and depression in our society. Right. And I would even... I, I really appreciate the way you push the point further, you know, and I would even push it another step further. It's not only that people of color or poor and middle-class whites and et cetera, et cetera, would benefit. Even the 1%, even the top elites would benefit from a more fair, equitable, just, inclusive society. Because this society that we have right now isn't even working for the prison guards or the prison warden. You know, these, these are not people radiating joy. And yeah. Okay, here's one of the things. The medical culture has made it such that the thought that you're in pain means you're in a medical, um, have a medical condition versus the pain being a message, right? Right. And so 
when you're in distress, you have bodily pain. That is the fundamental message that you need to adjust your, something in your body. But we've medicalized ourselves such, so much that we don't realize we can listen to these messages to adjust our body. And instead, we go and get an opioid or we get an antidepressant and we don't change our life. This is how we started, entered into the conversation and we don't change our lives. Instead, instead we kind of mute the sensation of distress that it's time for us to basically hit that implode button on our life and maybe transform it. You know, you transformed your life. I've transformed my life and we're both happier for it. We may not fade in with the mainstream anymore, but we're both happier for it. We're both happier for it. And so to listen to those messages of pain, to actually take Mm -hmm. them as messages of like separation versus I need to go buy something or I need to move to a new neighborhood or these are sometimes the messages of pain or messages of separation. And you know, we've got into a place where the, the messaging is like, it's normal to be depressed. It's human to have experiences of depression, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a chronic condition. It can be transformed and it is a message about some invitations in your life. I'm really curious, like, how did you get this radical? Like you mentioned you had a spiritual awakening. Like, yeah, how did you get so radical and how do you mesh with kind of the culture of medicine that you're still operating in is it a problem do you kind of keep quiet or are there maybe lots of physicians who are having similar awakenings i I raised my eyebrows and i'm like i'm radical really what's going on (laughs) i think so i mean radical means getting to the root of things oh Okay, that's what it means. Okay, yeah. uh, both both Charles and I speak Mandarin, so the radical is the yeah, root of, that, root of the that, yeah. I, yeah. Didn't know that about each other until until I saw that in your article. I knew you spoke Mandarin. Yeah, I hadn't um, spoken Mandarin with you, um, but yeah. okay, that is the radical, the root of it, right? So that's the foundation of things, and so there are many people who are my peers who practice integrated medicine. Um, I, one of my friends is an HIV doctor who's, who says, yeah, you know, certain things work, but really has a whole fundamental model of integrated medicine and integrated care. And, you know, everything matters, you know, being able to offer people treatments from Western traditional Western medicine, but also being able to go into their cosmologies, into their stories, into their cultural traditions and offer them that medicine as well. Um, there's a really wonderful, sociology called uh called the latino paradox Mm. which means that the first generation latinos are as uh robustly healthy despite their living conditions in america for first generation immigrants you know they're as healthy but then when they come the next generation they lose their maybe the thought is that they lose their cultural traditions they lose their connections and they become as unhealthy as americans Mm -hmm. and so even though they weren't in you know high economic living conditions, they were still had good health outcomes for the first generation, which means that there's something creating health and creating outcomes, merely your social economic conditions. That's connection, that's culture, that's traditional medicine, right? And then when you lose those things, and actually you come into what the ideologies of that you are a person of color, (laughs) into the ideologies of that you are oppressed and marginalized, and you and when you come into these ideas that you're anything other than a beautiful brown child, right? Mm-hmm. Or 
when you come into these kind of, maybe this is more psychologies of oppression of what white supremacy does, right? When you come into those things, you lose health, you lose robustness. And so to be held in your cultural traditions, to be held um, just in, in a tradition that's not broken, there's some medicine in that. There's some medicine in that. And so I didn't know it was radical, Charles. I'm feeling self-conscious. <laughs> I'm feeling very self-conscious. I just practice, I just practice a clinically-based, evidence-based medicine, area of medicine. Um, it's new, and it's just called psychedelic medicine. But I'm mm -hmm. still within the evidentiary realms of, of clinical care. <laughs> And I just and I just believe in spirit. I just believe in spirit. Yeah. That's all. Well, that's the radical part, you know. That I mean, the, all the stuff about holding somebody in the expectancy of healing and 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 that kind of thing. I think that's a, definitely a big step beyond evidentiary reductionistic medicine. And when we look at when we look at actually, we're always doing that. The the clinical medicine is always practicing intention and expectations. I need to bring this up because. There's a really amazing study that was done, and you were shown videos of, of the same, uh, of different people, a white man, a black man, a, a white woman, a, a black woman, all saying the same script. I'm feeling chest pain. I'm reaching for my arm. Mm -hmm. and, what, and what were the clinicians? These are doctors. What was their recommendation for each person? They all had a classic telltale sign of, I'm showing signs of having an acute heart attack. Right. And, it, and if the person was a person of color, they were less likely to be precisely diagnosed as having a heart attack. Hmm. And wh why this is important is because what's my intention for care? What's my attention for attunement? What's my attention for listening to you? And that intention, that frame that I hold you in, our medicine is already practicing intention and expectation medicine. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about our expectations for health outcomes for people of color, we're already practicing the, the ways that our intention or our beliefs about the possibilities of populations create outcomes. And I'm just in a practice of medicine, psychedelic medicine, where my intention for everyone that I meet is that I would love them and that they would be treated with the medicine of clinical care and science, but also with the medicine of love. And that's where I put my faith. And yeah. Yeah, that's so beautifully said. But actually, it, I, I know we want to end, but I want to press this point. Coming back into the conversation, I'm just saying that, you know, it's hard to be on message, right? You want to yeah. be on message, but you also have to say the things that are, are, are real in life for you. And the way that we're living with an identity politics, it feels like a trap because instead of creating a, a connection, we're creating rigidity. And so in conversation, instead of um, really being present to, I'm here in this conversation because I want to be in connection. You're, where can I find the place where the person like lapsed in their language and so I can lash them? Right. And I'm not saying that these things hurt, right? People have our, their vulnerabilities and the ways in which we misuse language can hurt. However, when we're in such rigid identity politics that we can't be in relationship. Because my goal is to be in relationship and connection with you. And so how do I use language and go to something deeper than the surface identities that were handed to me mm -hmm. um, and be in the connection and the goodwill, the belief in goodwill? This is a very, I'm just going to just say this, like, 
Yeah, go for we it. Are, we, are, we are at a place where we need connection and love. And maybe, maybe Charles, you're right. Maybe I'm a radical. Because all I'm like, <laughs> I'm just like, we need connection and love. And if those wounded parts in you and me are able to come together and be in conversation, and I know those wounded parts are sensitive. I know we need to be careful with them. But how do we create connection and love? Because the way in which we're creating separation is hurting us. And yes, if I misspoke for a moment and you lash out on me, and if you misspoke for a moment and I lash, lash out on you, it feels good like you won one for one round. You get to feel your indignation. And mind you, indignation is an addictive emotion. You know, it's an mm -hmm. addictive emotion. And you ride that wave on indignation, of the indignation. But and I don't- also it's about dominance and submission too. Yep. Like there's a lot of dominance submission dynamics going on in, in these politicized conversations. Thank you so much for bringing that in. I'm at the place where I understand that energy is really powerful. And when you're trying to train someone through energy, that's a really, you know, it's a really weird thing to feel where you're trying to get submission out of someone by shaming them. Right. And there's a way in which I think about Michelle Foucault's um, Discipline and Punish, and he talks about how as with the progress, basically he talks about the, the progress of the changing of the prison system, how the focus has gone from punishing the body to actually directly punishing the spirit, right? Mm -hmm. And so we do less corporal punishment to the body, but now it's actually to our souls, right? And now we're in a civilized society, so we don't fight. We actually attack our spiritual ego beings mm -hmm. through shame it's a it's a visceral and violent warfare and it it doesn't matter your size or your numbers anyone can participate in this warfare and it's mm -hmm. only at the level of language right yeah and so this is where the war is happening this is where the, the turf war is happening and to you know to hurl insults or to hurl attacks for insults. This is psychological war that people are engaging in. And so I believe it was that Harper's position paper signed by all these authors oh, who, were yeah. uh -huh. who were basically saying, give us free, please let, let us say what we want to say without us, you attacking our spiritual corporal bodies because it hurts us when you use words against us. Um, and one of my friends called it liberal uh, pearl clutching. It's like, you know, liberal free speech pearl clutching. It's just like, we should be able to say what we want to say. And it's, it's still spiritual warfare. And there's a way that we have to be robust and prepared for it. But beyond the warfare, again, you have to decide the kind of relationship you want to be in. Are you in relationships where you're creating connection or that you, do you want to be in strife? Yeah. And some people actually want the fight. Some people want to continue to fight on. They're addicted to the fight. Um, some people are using fight and struggle to get to a goal. And a lot of people create their place in the world by creating chaos, right? They create their brand in the world by creating chaos. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is like, I want to be invited to the stage to talk about love. I don't want to be invited to the stage to talk about suffering you know, and this conversation with this wonky place. And I'm like, why are we talking about, you know, these things? Because I really, I want to talk about our possibility and our highest and not yeah. to deny it, but- a break, like, like basically what happened, like we, 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 we stopped recording and then like we were, we were like, you know, 
really relaxed and really talking. I'm like, oh, hold on, this is the real stuff, you know? And one of the things that came up is like, wow, you know, this political minefield and people are, could hear what you said and accuse you of spiritual bypassing political issues, you know, or uh, white enabling or whatever. And we laughed about that a little bit. Um, but now what you're saying now is starting to sound like something that somebody could say, oh, you just want to talk about love, you're spiritual bypassing. So curious. Okay, you- can I just say something that yeah. if you're a visionary, you cannot always pay attention to the lay of the land and only talk about the reality of this current reality. A visionary has their mind a hundred years in advance and can see the possibility. Yeah. And so you're seeing what's happening in the world. I can quote you healthcare, like health disparity statistics. I, I know all of these things, but my mind cannot stay at that level or else I'll create at that le- level. Right. My mind creates the level of my vision. And my vision is for one where we have, you know, parity in health outcomes. And so what I talk about is to raise your vision to where my vision is of what we can create. And so, you know, King was a complicated dynamic dynamic man who considered violence and guns and came to nonviolence. And so we will not, we will not, we will not limit him to his, I have a dream speech, but the power of that speech is that he brought the consciousness of the nation to what he could vision. What he was talking about in words at that time was not even a conceptual reality for people. I'm living in that man's spiritual bypass because he accessed a spiritual place. He accessed a spiritual place and saw a vision of what was possible and he articulated it. They called him crazy for it. I'm living in his spiritual bypass. Yep. And, and so when I look at the world that I'm living in, I'm like, I'm living in, in King suffered from depression. He had that beautiful vulnerability, that vulnerability in him. And I'm like, I'm living in the delusions of a madman because they thought his, 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 what he said was delusional. Because why? To think that I can just walk, well, it's COVID, but that I can just walk into the department store, go to the, go to the um, counter and get the same service. That was crazy. Right? Unrealistic. It would unrealistic. 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 Yep. Anything and worth creating today is unrealistic. Anything, you know, because for, it's for different Ga- than reality. Than, for Ga- yeah. yeah, for Gandhi in his vision. So what I'm saying is Nelson Mandela, everyone, and I, my gosh, all, and all I'm talking about is equal health outcomes and equal health access for all people in America. You know what I'm saying? So that's just the limit. That's just my vision. And if you, and and to call that spiritual bypass, I'm like, you actually, when people accuse, if I'm not accused of this often, because I'm a pragmatist and I'm like, I'm creating structures, I'm creating plans. I have a vision and I have a plan. Right. And I have alliance and I have a team and I, you know, and I have people who support me and want to help me bring this vision to the world. Right. And so, what you call spiritual bypass, sometimes I'm just like, do you not know? Like, maybe I go further into it because I'm like, do you not know the power of my spirit? Do you not know? Because if you look at Oprah and if you listen to her talk, she says, you know what? I grew up in a small you know, town in Mississippi and we had an outhouse. And, but you know what? I just thought that I was uh, God, you know, I just thought that I was God's child and Jesus was my brother. That spiritual bypass, and when you know who you are a spirit, you will create from the level of your spirit instead of from the level of this world. And so I, I accept it because mm. all my life I've been walking, being able to create things 
from the level of my spirit. And it's not that, as I was joking about earlier, that I walk in white male privilege. I walk in God's privilege. I walk in the privilege of my spirit. And from there, I was able to say, yes, I live in Compton, but I'm going to go to Harvard through God's will. And so I don't, it's kind of like this whole thing, like people saying like it's spiritual bypass, so therefore you're delusional. And I'm like, or that you're not rational. And can I just give you the update that rationalism is not the only system of logic? It just has the hegemony right now, but it's not the only way of being in the world. And anyone who's experienced magic knows that, right? Anyone who's had a spiritual experience knows that spirit, spirit is real. It's not a bypass pace. It's the first place that you create from. And I know I sound like a preacher right now, but somehow you got me really activated. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> you I got mean, me really activated. I'm just like... <laughs> well, I mean, for one thing, like I'm personally not accusing you of spiritual bypass. But I'm just like... <laughs> You know, I, I get accused of that sometimes, you know, and I have kind of the same reaction that you do. And I'm like, what the words you just said are powerful medicine. It's like, that's probably the best response to, to an accusation of spiritual bias I've ever heard. So like, I want to enshrine what you just said, because it's not just people accusing each other of spiritual bypass. They're accusing themselves of spiritual bypass anytime they aspire to something that the apparent conditions of life say, says is impossible. Like we need the ally of the, the frequency that you were uh, expressing in order to remind, like I need that reminder to be like, yeah, anything worth creating requires some naivete. Anything, um, worth, that anything worth creating requires that I disbelieve the apparent limitations of practicality which isn't to say to ignore them, but don't, don't become subservient to them. You know, don't give them more power than they have. Like this is an important transmission. So I'm really happy that I, you know, provoked you. So if you are allow yourself to be, do not allow yourself to be captivated by the hyp hypnosis of this creation. This was someone else's dream. They just, you know, a while ago, they created this dream and you were within their dream. This material world that you're living in right now, th this was someone else's like delusion. You get to go forward, detaching yourself from the concreteness of their creation and really pay attention, connect with your inner vision of what you want to create. And if you spend less time with your mind trained to this level of, of reality of this level of, of existence, you will attune to what you want to create and you will find the people when you get the courage to actually speak your vision, when you get the courage to actually speak your vision saying what we can be love, live, love and treat each other lovingly and create a world that's inclusive and belonging. When you get the courage to, to speak that vision and don't care who calls you, you know, who accuses you of whatever, being a spiritual yeah. bypass, whatever, you will attract the others who want to help you support that vision. It's like, Oh, you, you said it aloud. You know what? I secretly also believe, believe that I want to live my love. Oh, let's come together. And then next thing you know, 50 years, 100 years in the, in the future, your vision will be the dominant vision. And someone's going to say, wait, I can do love better than what Melody created. Let me go and amplify my vision of love. <laughs> so I'm just saying you have to be willing to stand by your conviction. You know, every day that we're alive, we're living in an impossibility, right? When even in my short life, lifetime, because I'm still young, what I see in this world, everyone thought was impossible. Obama as president, impossible, right? Um, and so we have to know that, that 
We don't know what is possible. And so pushing to those limits to create what you want to create. Rick Doblins, who's the head of MAPS, who has brought MDMA to, to basically scientific fruition, you know, it's about to come to market. Mm-hmm. He did such deliberate work over years of deliberate, you know, precise, careful planning to bring a illegal medication back to market. Psychedelics now are a possibility that we can treat people with literally the medicine of love. What we thought was impossible, it is possible. And I'm here doing it um, as a black woman, you know, which means that I'm like, like, I'm just saying that like, this is, this is, this is real. This is real. Don't let someone limit your, the reality that you're going to create. <laughs> mm-hmm. And every single visionary was thought to be a delusional and spiritual bypass. King was on something, you know, and not everyone believed him. And there were a lot of people who didn't support him. And he still pressed on and, and, and created the world that he's, he's created. Right now, um, I don't know who are, you know, our core central leader who is really speaking to what we want to create. We know the Mm -hmm. problems that are right now. We know the problems that we're living in. We know the problems, but to articulate the clear vision of love that we can live in, because to find someone to articulate the clear vision of love that we can live in, that becomes a place your mind can nest into, right? Mm -hmm. That, we're safe on our streets. We've taken away the visceral fear for, of one another from our bodies and actually live in inclusion, you know? And that we've actually expanded the conversation and we don't just talk about black and white, we talk about Chinese and Latino and blah, 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 because we are all of this gorgeousness that mm-hmm. is humanity and we are all bringing our gifts, right? And so we, are, we have deconstructed, you know, these systems of thinking that even put the conversation between white and black, you know, and that we've broadened it to that we're including our collective humanity because there were always what native Americans who we have not yet mentioned in this conversation. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about America, right? So that's a schism. That's a, that's a framing, right? That's that excludes someone's reality from this conversation, a whole collective of people's, their reality from this conversation, right? We are, you know, we are in the land of massacres, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we have the opportunity to create this world where you have peace, you know, on the streets and, you know, and in your paycheck, (laughs) you know, and in your health, the healthcare that you experience in hospitals, right? But that doesn't happen because I've created policies and I've created protocols that you have to check through to make sure you get the same level of pain medication to a Latino person or as a white person. It's not going to happen through your protocols. It's going to happen because you love me. You know, it's going to happen because I love you and I've created such goodwill between us and that I show up in my light and you show up in your light and that, you know, it will be betraying yourself not to offer me the best that's in your heart. Now, when we can get there, you know, 
this is what is it the most more beautiful world we know is possible <laughs> beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Hearts possible this is more beautiful yeah. world I, our hearts know is possible and the reason that we know it's possible is because oh, on occasion we live it yep. on occasion we experience it right mm -hmm. that's right on occasion i i bring my best consistently and then i change the, the world and i change the environment that i'm living in and so you know i got you know i just got really excited and agitated and i'm like bring it on call me spiritual bypass and i'm gonna t i'm gonna point you to other spiritual bypass pastors who mm -hmm. use their vision their spiritual vision gandhi was a hundred percent led by spirit a hundred percent you know in his spiritual calling and and when you get yeah. into your calling and you know what you're called to do and called to create, I'm called to create health and inclusion and belonging for all people, right? And that wakes me up in the morning and that, and that, and that attracts everyone and everything I need to my message. Yes. And so it's, it, I, I'm, I'm okay. I'm a radical. I'm a radical. Right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, that was fantastic. I'm very, that was awesome. You're on fire. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Good. Yep. So I'm going to post your article that you sent me. Uh, is there any other, um, any website or anything that, that you'd they like can, to, to learn more about me and my offerings, they can go to melodyhays.com. That's melody with two L's, M-E-L-L-O-D-Y, H-A-Y-E-S.com. And to learn more about Ceremony Health and to get care, go to ceremonyhealth.org. All right. We'll put those links in the description. Yes, thank you so much. And I will say we are um, a faith-based nonprofit healing center. If you want to make a donation to Ceremony Health, we invite all love and care in a form of financial contributions as well. And can they make contributions through ceremonyhealth.org? Yes, they can go to that website and there's okay. a link to, to create a donation. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I actually, I'll just add a word for that. Um, you know, this is the kind of medicine that still, I would still say it doesn't fit most of the funding paradigms of medicine today. And if you want this kind of medicine to become integrated into a new normal, I would strongly encourage you, if you feel moved by anything that she said, to go there and, and yeah, offer your support. Great. Okay. Well, maybe now we'll say goodbye for real. And um, um, someday we'll have to have our uh, Mandarin conversation Okay, okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> that meant that you. I was and then I went to like Beijing oh. and, and, and studied oh. and yeah. You died in Beijing for how you like lived in Beijing for like 10 years or something? No, I lived in Taiwan. Taiwan, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. This is oh, funny so, because so. do you know who edits the sound of this? It's my fabulous ex-wife, Patsy, who's Taiwanese. Oh, how wonderful. <laughs> that, oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Oh, that's, and that's even more wonderful because you still have a great uh, Good, good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really, really amazing. Yeah. Oh,
Well, we'll do that again someday. Yeah. It's all in Mandarin. I'll practice on Mandarin with it all in Mandarin, okay? Right. We'll do our next one totally in Mandarin. Totally in Mandarin, okay? Yeah. We'll have subtitles. Yeah. Okay, yeah. That sounds wonderful. Right. Okay. Okay. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Bye, Melody. Bye-bye. Since we recorded this podcast, Dr. Hayes has moved on from Ceremony Health to her nonprofit, How We Heal. We will provide a link below if you want to support her work. This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.